0: Okay, so hi everybody and um, welcome to today's webinar, Organizations in COVID-19, Embodiment, Ethics, Lockdown. I'm Kay Kenny, I'm Professor of Business and Society here at NUI Galway School of Business and Economics and a member of the Whitaker Institute and the Work, Organisation and Society Research Cluster. I'm really excited to be hosting uh, this session today. I'm very pleased to introduce um, our four speakers. So our first speaker today is Alison Pullen. Alison is Professor of Management and Organization Studies at Macquarie University, Australia and Otto Monsted Visiting Professor at Copenhagen Business School's Department of Organization. Her scholarship focuses on analysing and intervening in the politics of work as it concerns gender discrimination, identity politics and organisational injustice. She's written widely on these topics including recent books, journal articles and Alison's Joint Editor-in-Chief of Gender Work and Organisation and an Associate Editor of Organisation Journal. Our second speaker then is Carl Rhodes, Professor of Organisation Studies and Deputy Dean at University of Technology Sydney Business School. His research investigates the ethical and political dimensions of management and leadership. Karl's work focuses on the idea of disturbing business ethics, arguing for a political lens to be placed on this field of scholarship, drawing for example on the work of Emmanuel Levinas, more broadly querying the role between the relationship between corporations, management logics and society. Our third speaker is Ian Munro, Professor of Leadership and Organisation at Newcastle Business School. Ian's primary research interests concern the application of Michel Foucault's concepts and methods to the process of organisation, including a focus on biopolitics. He's written on information warfare and in business, the focus on strategies of control and resistance, and is currently investigating so the effects of new techniques on inform- of information warfare associated with the Wikileaks network, activism. whistleblowing and he's recently published on these topics among others. Our final speaker then today is Professor Mariana Fataki, Professor of Business Ethics at Warwick Business School. Mariana holds degrees in medicine, health economics and a PhD in public policy from the LSE. Mariana is the present senior editor for organization studies and her research interests are in the area of markets consumerism and leadership and public services, gender and ethics of diversity in organizations, business ethics, the impact of business and society, with a focus on institutional corruption. She has also written written widely on these topics. So we have a range of speakers from different parts of the world. We are coming from Ireland. This focus is on the role of organizations and the issues of ethics and embodiment in light of the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting changes to social life and to work. Obviously, this. Pandemic has had different impacts in different parts of the world and these are some of the things that we'll be talking about So before I introduce my first speaker just a couple of issues around uh, What we'll be doing today Um, First of all a recording will be made and sent to those who've signed up and you know We'd like to hear from you during this webinar So if you have a question for any of our speakers, please use the Q&A function on the zoom We'll be answering questions at the end of the session and we'll try and get to as many as possible. So, to kick things off, I just want to welcome Professor Alison Pullen. Alison, over to you.
1: Thanks, Kate, and uh, sincere thanks for the invitation. And my thanks are extended to those at the Whitaker Institute for Organising. Today I sit at home on Gadigal land, part of the Eora Nation, and recognise that I'm a foreigner on this land the land where I gave birth to my son almost 13 years ago. I pay my respects to elders past and present and extend my respect to any First Nations people here today. In the 20th anniversary preface of Talking Up to the White Woman, Aileen Morton Robinson offers wisdom on the global pandemic that continues to take the lives of so many. She speaks. Those of us who survive are left to deal with loss, grief, and fear. We are facing an invisible enemy that socially and physically isolates the living and the dead. A virus that has debilitated economies in the space of a few months. Biology has confounded politics and economies reminding us of our vulnerability as a species. Social distancing provides the only sense of reassurance that mediates the fraught, painful, and often difficult situation humans face at this moment in history. A moment we share with Mother Earth, who is showing signs of recovery across land, sea, water, and air. Global noise and pollution reduction in the ocean and land has allowed our non-human relatives to reap the benefits of human containment and inactivity. Birds are chirping whales are singing and Mother Earth is recuperating. My hope is that the significance of this moment speaks to and is understood by humans, but I fear that any introspection gain will be lost once the virus subsides. Power too is infectious and spreads like a virus fed by human dominance and superiority. The pandemic has certainly exposed dominant power relations In the UK, the Institute for Fiscal Studies found that British black Africans are dying from COVID at more than three times the rate of the white population. In Australia, rising levels of homelessness and domestic violence among women are reported. Nadia Al Ali speaks on the effects of the pandemic in the global south in relation to women. Writing that specific risks and vulnerability are associated with intersectional pre existing inequalities, highlighting the wider challenges faced by LGBTQ people, ethnic minorities, domestic workers, migrants, and sex workers. Considering transnational feminist solidarities, Al Ali makes clear how, against the backdrop of these gendered intersectional challenges, Feminist initiatives and mobilizations that deal with the crisis in specific local contexts are needed, as well as nationally, regionally, and transnationally. This morning, I spoke with GOO editor Banu Oscar Zang Pan, who referred to COVID-19 as a never-ending labor. Recognizing and valuing women's labor is central to mitigating the risks that women face during the pandemic. In a forthcoming commentary with Banu on women's value in society, we see racist patriarchy as a shadow pandemic, which continues to rely on and exploit women. Women's care work and life making work after Tithi Bhattachary, continues to be undervalued and unrecognized, making a case for the redefinition of productivity and work. In the pages of gender work and organization, powerful feminist experiences across geographical race, sex, class-based differences are being documented. Their embodied realities, including the racism experienced by Chinese women in the UK, the risks to Brazilian domestic workers, women's care work for elderly parents, fear and anxiety and isolation, work intensification and working mother's exhaustion recognizing that women are at great risk from increased unemployment and precarious work, do more formal care work in aged and healthcare, do more unpaid domestic labor, are more often than not the unpaid care worker of children, the sick and the elderly, and do unpaid work in the community is central. Commenting from regions of conflict and crisis such as the Middle East, Lena Abi Rafi called recently called for a reconsideration of women's work that recognizes their contributions and which involves building environments work environments that builds on the flexibilities that women have demonstrated in lockdown government paid care for those who need it is a critical demand building feminist communities and economies rely on feminist care and solidarity as embodied relations to address structural inequalities In an inspirational conversation with Cynthia Enloe, Ash Prasad and Ghazal Zulfikar, discuss the role of praxis and resistance in feminist solidarity where Enloe calls for feminist curiosity and the need to teach students self-reflection, especially the ways in which academics produce students who go on to become complicit in organizational irresponsibility. For today, I take three points from ENLO to share with you. One, to be mindful of the dangers of patriarchal and militaristic ideas in managing the pandemic, which sees manliness as the solution to every challenge. We have, had, we have enough evidence to suggest that women leaders are managing differently and with much better outcomes. We can also see women labor organizers and new civil society groups making a difference. Two, to look for the ways in which patriarchy persists over time and the ways in which racist patriarchy are at work in the nitty gritty of our everyday organizational lives. And last, thirdly, we face the ways in which we need to face the ways in which women have been among, I quote, the daily legitimizers of feminized practices that normalize gendered racism and gendered ethnocentrism. As Bhattachary says, After the COVID-19 crisis, capitalism will try to get back to business as usual. Our job is to not let the system
0: forget. Thank you so much, Alison, um, for these insightful reflections and certainly So many things resonate, Um, not least this idea of this um, patriarchal, but also aggressive and masculinist notion of the war on the pandemic, as if those sorts of ideas will be helpful in going forward. And I know that you've written about this with Sheena Vakani recently in relation to feminist leadership and alternative ways of leading that seem to be more effective, but also more caring and uh, in terms of how people in up positions of authority are dealing with this. So moving on to our next speaker, um, Carl, over to you.
2: I made that very easy trick for new players of not unmuting, but uh, thank you very much, Kate. Um, uh, like Alison, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation um, on whose land I both live and work. Um, I'd also pay my respects to their ancestors and the elders and acknowledge their ongoing status of the, of, as the first peoples of this land, which, I, which I'm sitting on now. Now, in 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 response to Kate's provocation uh, with this webinar, I want to use this opportunity to talk a little bit uh, of the organisational ethics that I see in place uh, during this time of of COVID. And if you think of just before COVID, um, in January of this year, and and before that, just before that, there was actually a lot going on with organisational uh, ethics. You know, before the devastation of of the virus. On the 21st of January in particular, um, the world's elite uh, jetted into the Swiss Alpine village of Davos. These were politicians, public figures, business moguls, and various high-minded celebrities. And the focus of of the meeting uh, at Davos of the World Economic Forum was on uh, what they specifically referred to as stakeholders for a cohesive and sustainable world. Uh, the meeting marked a high tide moment um, for what some people call woke capitalism. Uh, this is a term used to describe the condition where the owners of capital, be they individuals or corporations, have somehow transcended the, the selfishness of shareholder primacy. publicly support progressive and ostensibly traditionally left-wing political causes, um, anything from marriage equality to anti-racism to addressing climate change, as well as take private action on political roles traditionally reserved for the state. And what what Davos promised was a whole new zeitgeist. I mean, it had already been announced in 2019 when the Business Roundtable, which is a kind of a U.S. club for big-time CEOs they'd proclaimed that the business the purpose of business had somehow fundamentally uh, changed um, from shareholder primacy to stakeholder capitalism. The question is amongst all of this and there was a lot more going on at that time of organizations uh, business organizations, corporations making various various very big claims as to their social role. So these, you know, do-good incorporations, where were they when COVID hit just a few months later? Well, effectively, like Fairweather Friends, big business did very little to make any significant difference. Um, For many of them, you know, come the trouble times, they were lining up the world over crying poor mouth in hope for some taxpayer-funded government bailouts. And for decades, neoliberal dogma had insisted on small government when it came to corporation, corporate regulation, welfare, and education. But malignant self interest is rife when those who fed ferociously from the neoliberal trough were the first in the corporate welfare line, just like they had been before back in 2007. Now, in the lead up to Davos itself, not everyone agreed with this movement to, to you know emphasise uh, shareholders. Um, uh, various right wing reactionaries had been on their soapboxes, decrying woke capitalism as a kind of you know corporate capitulation to a leftist ideology. Um, you know the people who did it were kind of decried as some kind of corporate socialists. But if it wasn't clear before, what Covid's demonstrated is that these reactionary pundits were completely wrong. Take a company like Nike. Now Nike was, the, in many ways, a kind of poster child for woke capitalism. They courted a lot of controversy back in 2018 um, when they released an ad campaign featuring Colin Kaepernick, um, at the Dream Crazy uh, campaign. Now, this had a very important impact on stimulating public debate about racism and police brutality, but, It also did quite a lot to bolster Nike's brand. It actually presaged a $6 billion increase in the company's market value. Now, by comparison, when COVID hit, Nike made a contribution of $15 million. Um, uh, Really quite uh, pathetic uh, in in comparison. If you look at some other examples in the UK, Amazon donated 3.9 million, but bear in mind, over the previous 10 years, they'd avoided 100 billion in tax in that very same period. Um, uh, so really it's a, a, small, a, small, uh, a small difference. Um, uh, the Gates Foundation and Netflix pledged $100 million uh, each. Mark Zuckerberg from Google, he threw in 25 million. But that's chump change when it comes to the vastness of corporate wealth. And it's infinitesimal if you compare it to what's going to be needed to address the health and economic effects of COVID. I mean, one early analysis estimated that the bill would be at least $5 trillion in the United States alone. But in the end, what's really happened is that COVID has been a boon for big corporates and billionaires. Oxfam released a report recently where they refer to this as pandemic profiteering. Now, there are 634 people on the Forbes billionaire list. Since COVID, their wealth has increased by 685 billion US dollars. That's up around 25% to a total of a staggering $3.7 trillion. Now, if there's an ethics involved here, an ethics associated with this, you know, what we're calling here woke capitalism, it allows for gross inequality. And if that's so, it's an ethics that's very much a corporeal matter, at least in its effect. It's an ethics that prays in the bodies of other people while positioning itself in relation to disembodied righteousness. It emulsifies economic self-interest and moral self-aggrandizement. And while this might all seem like kind of doomsaying on my point, in a sense COVID as well as highlighting this has also planted some seeds of change. In many countries, we saw the retreat of corporations and the market and the return of elected governments in setting the conditions for the future welfare of citizens for better or for worse. The lesson that COVID offers is that we need to get back to building a future that restores a socially driven driven democracy for the people. I mean, in the hour of COVID's darkness arises a need to restore hope in a shared prosperity. Does it not cast its face in the fickleness of fair weather corporate friends and the crumbs that drop from their tables? The danger, of course, is that corporations and plutocrats have incorporated a new wave of social awareness into the primary ethos of neoliberal self-interest. But it's this morality that an embodied ethics disrupts, disrupting the passive acceptance of an inevitability of disembodied rational self-interest as the essence of human action and desire an ethics that emerges from an openness and generosity towards other people rather than the neoliberal ethic of self-interest. One where the self is called into question by other people rather than bolstered um, in its own sovereignty. I mean, this is a responsibility that that calls us to seek and create alternative futures, not endlessly repeating a refrain of self-interest that reproduces social gendered and racial hierarchies, while all the time paying lip service to the scam of meritocracy. I mean, organizational ethics? We've seen corporates at the big end of town scrambling for power and money as the world got sick. I mean, contrary this, maybe COVID can prompt a renewed demand for the disruption that can be given by an embodied ethics. I mean, COVID has shown that the neoliberal experiment has failed to prepare the world for crisis, failed also even for non-crisis time, and that and now is the time for a change. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks so much, Carl. And uh, two essential reflections. I mean, a lot of our attendees um, today are, are teaching business ethics uh, in the places that they work or teaching CSR, and if anything, this particular moment in history is, is throwing the truisms of 10, the last 10 years of corporate social responsibility. I mean, you nearly rename your module with a question mark at the end of that, if it didn't have a question mark at the end of that, or uh, phrase already, um, for that reason. But also more to, to throw into question, who is the individual at the heart of business ethics? Like you say, who is this subject? Who is this quasi-independent, uh, autonomous individual that we sort of Business ethics theory kind of has us believe is is um, at the heart of these things, and and, and this pandemic is, is is showing us that if anything we are by no means independent or somehow separated from each other. Hopefully, we'll be able to take these up in our discussion. So, our next speaker um, is Professor Ian Munro. I'll pass over to you now, Ian.
3: Thanks, Kate. Um, I have a short. Uh... PowerPoint presentation to share. Hello, everyone. Uh, so I very much agree with uh, uh, the previous two speakers, um, Alison and Carl, and uh, what I'm going to say I think very much ties in with what they've already, issues they've already raised. So uh, I'm going to, the agenda I've got is this idea of uh, the, the, uh, this pandemic, uh, the COVID pandemic uh, to some extent uh, presents uh, a reevaluation of values to, uh, That uh, concerns the way in which we uh, look at, of course, capitalism, as uh, Carl mentioned, and also our bodies and issues related to care and solidarity. And I'm going to look at the viral ethics in terms of uh, viral biopolitics, the way populations are managed by governments, and uh, the viral commons uh, the way in which we live together and care for each other. Um, So uh, the... um, uh, health philosopher, uh, Georges Canguillem, uh, talked about health as a way of uh, tackling existence. Um, one is not only the possessor or bearer, but also, if necessary, the creator, um, establisher of vital norms. And uh, Richard Horton, the editor of Lancet, he actually says, uh, this global calamity is not a crisis concerning health, it's a crisis about life itself, a politics of life and a politics of inequality. Um, So uh, the way in which we of course uh, interact, uh, the way in which we work, uh, the way in which we care for each other, all of these basic uh, social uh, expectations, values um, have all uh, changed massively uh, over the last few months since Covid started. Um, So uh, as Carl also mentioned, uh, Richard Horton states that Covid has seen a rebirth of the state and particularly uh, through, I would say, uh, what I call digi- um, digital biopolitical interaction or digital biopolitics, the role of the um, sort of uh, information technology uh, has um, uh, intensified massively. And in these companies, Amazon, Facebook, uh, Zoom, that we're using right now, if we, they've seen their share prices uh, skyrocket, uh, where the rest of the econ- much of the rest of the economy has. Um, uh, suffered catastrophic losses, both in em- employment and, uh, um, yeah, um, custom. But I've con- uh, categorized uh, different biopolitical polit- strategies for managing the viral population based on uh, a reading of a number of books on COVID and uh, newspaper articles. One is, uh, Carl already mentioned, the neoliberal response. This is largely based on this idea of laissez-faire state intervention. Uh, Voluntary social distancing, the primacy of economic relations, uh, primacy of norms of wealth creation, uh, the role of behavioral uh, economics in um, advisory uh, bodies and so forth. Um, Countries such as the UK, US and Sweden, to a large extent, have taken a a neoliberal response. And uh, they often, at the beginning of the crisis, uh, businessmen were asked for their uh, opinion about the effects of of COVID and the implications of COVID and so on. And uh, there was a very uh, sort of classic uh, statement of this by a very prominent, uh, the chairman of a prominent uh, pub chain in uh, the UK, who claimed that uh, COVID uh, uh, should have have no real effect on business, uh, on his business, because... Uh, the, the virus doesn't uh, circulate in pubs, uh, he, said, he stated on Sky News. And uh, he, this uh, type of, uh, you, a lot of the misinformation, uh, the, the World Health Organization talked about an infodemic as well as a, a um, pandemic. Uh, and that infodemic wasn't just circulated by hostile states. It was largely circulated by members of... Uh, of the business community, and uh, of course, a number of uh, uh, very odd um, political uh, leaders as well that we, we we've seen uh, making all sorts of strange recommendations for dealing with COVID. But um, it's a classic laissez-faire response. Now, having said that, the, the laissez-faire didn't stretch as far as to think, "Well, I'm going to let my business go." As Karl mentioned, they wanted socialisation of they wanted, it's socialism for the, the rich and um, privatize. you know, the risks are, are all individualized, the poor get to suffer and the rich get bailouts. That's what was, but it's a classic neoliberal response. Now, another response is the militaristic response. Um, most countries suspended some laws, uh, some rights, uh, freedom of association and so on. Um, also, uh, um, uh, uh, the right to communicate uh, 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 freedom of expression. Uh, and so uh, we're, these these rights have been very heavily policed. Uh, the police and military have been granted new powers. And um, some, of, some of this, of course, it, a lot of this will be for medical reasons and so on, but um, it's still a militaristic response. And uh, one of the uh, reasons for uh, the, effective, the relative effectiveness of the Chinese response once they discovered what was going on, although they did um, uh, attempt to uh, silence early uh, whistleblowers and so on. But they employed uh, military biological warfare units um, in the front line in uh, Wuhan and so on, which helped uh, manage uh, the COVID population, you know, the potentially viral population. And finally, the medical response. Uh, based, uh, this is based on um, scientific bodies. Uh, every government has its own scientific bodies. There, of course, is the World Health Organization, which oversees the, the sort of global, uh, gives advice to governments on how to manage it. And you, you had, of course, different states, um, argue, you know, different medical bodies arguing with each other. Famously, in Britain, there is the uh, the Sage Group, which uh, the, the, gov- the the expert body that's um, advises the government. And there's the independent sage group. There's another expert body, uh, which was set up by another group of scientists, a uh, more diverse group and so on, which actually offers uh, different advice from, from the official sage group. Um, but uh, th- there is some uh, overlap between these different strategies. Um, they may be used to more, in more or less different levels. Uh, um, in different countries. Um, we've seen a sort of mix of them. Uh, but you have seen, yeah, as Horton says, uh, a rebirth of the state, uh, particularly with uh, the um, uh, role of medicine, to some extent the role of the military, and, and particularly with the, uh, yeah, the uh, use of um, suspension of rights, uh, funding, increased funding of health, and so on, temporarily. And there's also viral apartheid. Uh, one of the issues that this, uh, that my two previous, uh, the two previous speakers have mentioned is this idea of viral apartheid, that, that there are some, uh, there are privileged workers who have been able to use uh, the, uh, make you know, the benefits of uh, information technology. Academics would be one, um, but the sort of uh, knowledge workers generally, professional classes. Uh, And the ones who uh, suffer the most, of course, are the ones uh, at the front line of of caring, uh, hospital workers, um, uh, and so on. And you've seen uh, the vectorial classes, Mackenzie Ward calls it, uh, um, massive uh, increase in share prices for Amazon, Facebook, Zoom, and so forth. Amazon announcing 100,000 extra jobs. Uh, essential workers, healthcare workers, home care workers, it's bodily enclosed, sorry, uh, bodily embodied, proximal, exposed, and contaminated work. It's gendered, it's racial. Um, Richard Horton uh, talks about the, the fact that uh, black and Asian women in the UK were four times more likely to die from COVID 19 compared with their white counterparts. That uh, statistic does come from the Institute of Fiscal Studies, as Alison mentioned. Uh, the mortality rate of those in, in England from the most deprived areas is more than double the rate of those in the least deprived areas. But even, uh, re- un- even uh, there have, been, of course, been massive costs related to lockdown, related to treating uh, COVID. Uh, the United Nations estimates uh, 15, uh, 15 million uh, extra cases of domestic abuse, um, and of course, un- unemployment, um, suicide, uh, depression, and all a huge number of social costs related to to lockdown. So even treating COVID, of course, is is massively problematic. The social costs are massively problematic. Uh, What happens with, well, you've got individualizing fear of the other, social distancing, self-isolation, contact tracing, and all these things, of course, are uh, further individualizing people. The use of IT uh, to work, increasing use of IT to work, Uh, Everyday social interactions have been reduced with family members, colleagues, uh, friends, members of the community. Uh, uh, Collective care care of the other uh, practices of uh, home care, health care, and so on. Practices of uh, effective solidarity with sick, uh, the exposed, and the vulnerable uh, have been uh, problematized um, because, of course, those who are caring are also uh, um, in the difficult position of being uh, very at risk um, and likely to be uh, con- likely to contract the disease themselves. Um, the biopolitics of care is uh, Donna Haraway talks about the immune system is a map drawn uh, to guide the recognition and misrecognition of the self and the other in the dialectic of Western biopolitics. It's a misconception to see the self as uh, self-contained, uh, defensive, and individualistic. And uh, she discusses uh, the human frames us frames uh, by bio, modern biopolitics in terms of companion species, where we infect each other all the time, and calls for sympoesis, uh, living and dying well together. And uh, this would be the reevaluation of values that, that Richard Horton and others are calling for, and my uh, colleagues uh, in the uh, webinar today, the re- re-evaluation of values, the demands that we. Uh, see ourselves as companion species, and um, yeah, uh, how do we live and die well together? So, uh, conclusions, viral reevaluation of values, and, uh, you have different strategies uh, of viral biopolitics, population management, we live in a viral commons, and that viral commons is, commu- is constituted by practices of care, solidarity, conviviality, and uh, living and dying well together.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much Ian, um, incredibly detailed and rich uh, analysis of, of where we are now from, from your reading and thank you so much for this. Um, we'll be able to take up some of these points which cross over in some ways um, with what others have said. So our next speaker now is Professor Mariana Fataki and I'll pass over to you Mariana.
4: Hi to everyone. So many thanks to Kate and Whitaker Institute. I had the pleasure to hold the fellowship 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So lovely to return to Whitaker even in this form. Um, so I, I'm just going to not I'm try. I will try to avoid repeating what uh, my colleagues, friends, and collaborators have already said. And I will focus, actually, on the very embodied aspect of COVID. And, um, uh, I have kind of thought that COVID is a great accelerator. It had brought to the fore issues we were aware of, but somehow succeeded both individually and collectively, societally and organizationally, succeeded to actually avoid coming to terms with. And one of such things is that we are all really sharing that precariousness as human beings basically, and COVID had brought that to the fore. And it brought to the fore some other things as well, which is that uh, it's shared precariousness as part of human conditions. Put bluntly, we are all susceptible to disease, infirmness, and dying. But it also brought to the fore how this um, p- precarity is unequally distributed, socially produced, embedded, and reproduced. And here I take an inspiration not only from my medical background, which is always informing me, my thinking and it's the back of, of my mind, but also. Um, what has been um, a journey for me within academia and in my minute and small activist practice, the the thinking from feminist um, theories and feminist practice obviously. So what I was just trying to, uh, I'm using terminology that uh, Judith Butler made um, made, uh, actually kind of um, available to all of us and um, I think that uh, starting from, and I will not repeat really what my colleagues said, but starting from the fact that within our small uh, settings, within our bubble, as I call academia, we have noticed, for example, that we have an increase in submissions by our male colleagues and decrease in submissions over COVID by our female colleagues. What does it mean? Well, very simply, it means that actually many female colleagues are still uh, having the privilege of actually performing care in disproportionate, in disproportionate, actually, amount. So that uh, that, and that's one of the fa- uh, of the aspects how that that COVID has translated into our own, into our own settings. But more than that, uh, we can actually see how that um, uh, unequal distribution of precarity affects affects the, our planet on the space in terms of spe- speciality, right? So for example, I was only reading very recently that India India actually suffers the highest um, recession s- since it became an independent country, 26%. It's close to actually what the UK, the UK uh, experiences, but still it's much higher. And in India's terms, it means like almost 200 million people will be put back to extreme poverty through COVID. So that precarity is really not only um, unequally distributed within gender, race, and geography, but within our own societies, which is the most important things. What can we do as academics? And what do we do actually um, you know, as society in how we deal with that inequality that has been there before, but now it can be no longer, I would argue, ignored. So for example, recently I also read that our politicians said that in the UK, as a matter of fact, actually statement of fact, that in the UK, in the poorer areas, COVID will become, will turn to be, be an endemic condition. Not only we have a triple or quadruple mortality and, and um, uh, in, this, um, in this areas, but actually somehow this becomes a normalized condition. Uh, further on from that is how do we deal with that unequal precarity. And that's the most interesting point where our role as academics is super important in my personal view. So how do we deal? Well, in the u- usual uh, style, by othering the victim, right? And uh, by not recognizing in that way, by, um, in c- terms of geography, by distancing ourselves from these people so they become unrecognizable and unrelatable to ourselves. They, they have strange cultural habits and, um, you know, uh, they are just basically not like us, to, to cut the very long story short, but it is within our societies that we see people who are not like us. So for example, a, a minister not so long ago in the UK, a minister not so long ago said, well, the higher mortality um, in, in Black and, uh, black and um, ethnic communities in the UK is due to their unhealthy lifestyles. You see, these people are actually not living healthy lifestyles. They're fatter, they don't eat healthy food, and therefore, by implication, the higher mortality is their own responsibility. And that is a legacy of long responsabilization that has started in the UK, in stigmatization, and holding, actually, you know, uh, certain groups of population, ever increasing groups of population, responsible for their own lifestyles and their own plight, which is actually socially reproduced. Because the first thing to go in austerity, what is the first thing to go? Well, disability benefits, for example, in these countries, right? And social credit is the first first thing that actually is 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 um, is, is actually a, fa- a false victim to any austerity policies. So, it's um, uh, um, uh, while as, whilst I agree with everything that my colleague said, I will just only say it's not about reevaluating our values, but it's actually bringing them to the fore, talking about issues of socially reproducing inequalities and injustices, which has, have always been there, but we somehow managed to ignore them in this bubble of, of actually larger societal. Of, of consumerism and, and market as a, a neoliberal which and marketized discourse, which is part of obviously a neoliberal hegemony and ideology, which is the only game in town now. So, so bringing that back to the fore, and I will conclude my, my actually short intervention by saying, What is the role of academics? In that, in that, in that, uh, in that, actually, in that situation. So I want to pay tribute here to the untimely dis- deceased David Graber, who not only is an inspiration for for his incisive, and innovative, and um, and um, inspirational work in terms of uh, of. He's, this is the first Mark who wrote a history of debt. How could there be no history of debt? That's an interesting thing from an anthropological perspective. But more close to home, he spoke about bullshit jobs. That is jobs, actually, that not only do not contribute to, 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 to society, but actually stand in the way of society's progress. And these are the usually well-paid jobs, whilst, um, the, whilst the jobs that are necessary, like COVID again, the great accelerator, has brought that to the fore, jobs like cleaners, um, bus drivers, nurses, um, delivery people. These are the low paid jobs, but the essential jobs that if they are not performed, society comes to the hold. So how do we position ourselves in that continuum of bullshit jobs? Because I think there is a lot of, actually, there is, um, as part of neoliberal hegemony, our meaningful jobs that have to do with actually making young people able to think, giving them tools to think and critically assess, rather than cramming them with useless knowledge which or useful knowledge, which will anyway become redundant in five to 10 years' time, whilst their critical ability, which we're supposed to instill in them, will not become redundant. So how do we oppose that our own jobs, don't become bullshit jobs? Because I'm talking about academia here. I don't think it's enough just to describe, although it's super important to describe and highlight, I think, and I want to make a call here, that if we want our academic jobs not to be compulsive jobs, we need to be engaged in activist practice with people who do the real job out there and make our job real and meaningful. Thank you. Thank
0: you so much, Mariana, and um, for these insightful comments, which translate to some of the things that people have spoken about. And maybe now we can, we can draw out some of these um, issues. Um, Alison, if I may, you made a point that has stuck with me um, around the idea that the introspection gained during this particular period will be lost after. And I think it's one of these senses we get that we are in a particular time and place where certain things that each of the panel members have talked about as, as situations of, of gross inequality um, have come to the fore, but we will forget as things become segmented after. From the precision of, from sort of feminist ethics and the idea of social reproduction, the idea of that we exist in no matter what flavor of social democracy or, or um, political economy we're talking about, we're in the idea that there's an entire body of work that remains unpaid and yet uh supports the capitalist economy in which um we are working particularly in western countries to what extent are demands or claims um, for these sorts of uh inequalities to be rectified are you seeing anything like this that may allow us to continue on beyond this point in terms of the the care work that people are doing the unpaid labor that goes into sustaining the economy often the unpaid labor hugely frequently of women that goes into sustaining the economy are you seeing anything coming out that may look like something sustainable
1: well thanks kate i think there's um there's decades of uh learning and work that's been done um from from the 60s onwards uh by by feminists who we continue to draw on and who've given us the tools to work with I think what 's happened in uh, in the context in which I work um, in a business school context is that I think we've uh, we've taken for granted um, our relative uh, privileges and we haven't been uh, or I haven't been uh, working with uh, with community groups and uh, civil organisations that allow us to intervene in practical terms. But I think rather than giving women more work to do, we need to see people making the structural changes that allow more women to get back to work after COVID, and that relies on uh, governments to provide. Uh, sufficient resources to, for free childcare and other forms of care, which in um, in a privileged society like Australia we're not seeing. We're actually seeing cuts uh, to women's uh, welfare and uh, and packages that make it unsustainable for women to return to work. Now, if if we want to recover after COVID, and I'm speaking very confidently talking about after COVID, I don't think it's going anywhere for for some time, then governments need to be working with organizations and making them accountable for providing the resources that's embedded in the infrastructure of all organizations.
0: Thank you very much for this. Um, I just wanted to ask a question of Ian, um, because Ian, your work uh, has of late looked very much at sort of the idea of resistance via information technology. So studying, for example, the Panama Papers, journalists using technology to communicate, studying WikiLeaks as repository. To what extent do people need bodies to resist? So, I mean, in terms of, do you see any sorts of resistance to the the issues that you've spoken about that can be utilized or that can go down the medium of information technology, or are you more inclined, we've a long history of civil disobedience as involving the placing of the body in the public space, whether non-violent or other forms of protest. Is the body needed for resistance, do you think? Uh,
3: absolutely, uh, the whole issue of care and social reproduction that Alison, uh, re- everybody's raised actually, uh, is, is fundamental to uh, solidarity and uh, forms of autonomy and alterni- uh, creation of alternative forms of organizing and resistance, so i, I think the body uh, and yeah it, it's, uh, and um, this this issue of social reproduction is is fundamental um, but also i t uh, because you 've got yeah, misinformation and uh, you 've got the, this neoliberal hegemonic uh, sort of uh, system that Carl uh, mentioned as well, where, which is sort of teaching us, teaching us how to live from where uh, to become consumers, to ignore uh, the ones who we don't see, we don't care for, uh, we put away, um, and so on. Uh, that's that's all. Yeah, we need to, that. Need I think there has to be absolutely embodied. Uh, resistance, but there, there also has to be a reappropriation of the means of knowledge production and, and communication uh, and the university would certainly be very much a part of that and we that that will has to be how how to do it, of course, is difficult. There, in the case of COVID, we had some interesting examples of in a few interesting whistleblowers uh, who uh, not only in China, of course, where um, uh, a very vital source of information, but in the National Health Service people talking out about lack of PPE and all sorts of things uh, going on, um, which is all, all very important part of the, the role of IT, not just for uh, Zoom and current continuing work, but, but uh, finding out things that we desperately need to, to find out about in order to exercise autonomy and collective solidarity.
0: Hopefully, debates around education and how this might uh, change will, will address some of these and um, just a, a final question for uh, Carl um, following the idea of well capitalism and um, these demands on corporates and it 's kind of interesting in the context of the u s this particular country has 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 often drawing on the more libertarian side of things, has broken up monopolies in the past uh, where it's seen that they are getting in the way of the individual entrepreneur, the small business who is so, you know, with AT&T in in the oil industry and things like this. And yet now we have these monopolies that very much govern sort of how we buy, how we consume uh, information and those sorts of things. But the scale of wealth uh, on the part of their owner almost kind of is as never before, as you pointed out. And so, you know, are we in uncharted territory in terms of how political uh, systems might actually effectively deal with this through the traditional um, methods of law and regulation?
2: it again. Uh, to some extent, um, I think we are. Um, I, I mean, if there's a parallel, it would be a, a parallel between, you know, the uh, US robber barons of, of the so-called gilded age of post-Civil War America. And so there's many similarities, I think, between extreme wealth um, now and extreme wealth um, at at that time. I think there is a difference, as as, uh, as I was saying, that there's much more of a moralization of inequality today than perhaps there was uh, at that time, and even though that was also a golden age of philanthropy as we 're going through another another similar phase now with kind of massive um, foundations created by uh, uh tech billionaires back then they were supporting you know arts and humanities in museums and universities, but now it 's about you know Um, uh, much more, again, traditionally kind of left uh, kind of causes. So I think it's quite different. I mean, but how to kind of disrupt that is extraordinarily uh, difficult, especially because in liberal democracies, you know, many governments for decades have been uh, uh, hand in hand with these things. I mean, we've seen calls here in Australia recently, for example, Uh, a call to uh, rapidly increase uh, tax cuts so that we can spend our way out of the COVID problems. Now the idea that the market is the resolution to everything, which again is a kind of neoliberal mantra, is just being resurrected. So I think it's really important that that we debate um, uh, these issues and much of I think what academics can do via in terms of uh, Activism is to try more and more to enter the public sphere and influence debates and discussions that are going on in ways that other wouldn't wouldn't have done. I mean, of course, we can also potentially organize, you know, protests and actions, but that's not the stuff we're good at. You know, we're trained in speaking and writing. So I think it's from that basis that we can try and influence debates.
0: Thanks for that Carl. Um, the work of many, of, of everybody on the panel is very much geared towards this. The, um, what each of you seem to, to me to share is an uh, unusual dedication both to theory and philosophy, but also to academic activism through your um, writing and contributing in the media. Um, so we have some questions coming in through the Q&A and uh, we won't, probably won't have time to answer all of them, but um, looking at, at one of the initial ones. Um, And the the question, the questioner notes that something springs to mind in terms of embodiment and organisation and asks mental health, COVID-19 seems to have brought mental health issues into sharp focus with home working, family demands, loneliness, loss of freedom, personal loss seem to add to this. How do the panel see employing organisations in relation to this, in relation to this mental health epidemic? And Mariana, I was wondering, given that your background in health but also you're writing on the issue of mental health and um, to what extent is this a pandemic of anxiety and to what extent do organizations play a role in exacerbating and or providing assistance with relations to this?
4: Okay, thank you Kate. So uh, what I will say here, of course, as Ian correctly said, we have infodemic, right? And there has been, I recently read a piece of research which suggests that actually reading and com- being bombarded all the time with information, which changes so quickly about COVID, and we face such big uncertainty anyway, uh, impacts our uh, uh, has a negative impact on our mental health, including loneliness, um, you know, not being being separated from family, etc. Uh, but I think I want to stress something more important here, which again has to do with. Um, which how our neoliberal states, especially in the u k where I'm located, denudes actually and hollows the capacities of the state so then the state can be criticized of course of, of course for being inefficient so in in case of mental health, we follow the uberization of mental health really by it being outsourced actually to companies like Babylon right you know to come uh, we have testing testing related to COVID, not to mental health, but to COVID, outsource to hedge funds, right? Deloitte, etc. Uh, so I, I, I mean, as if nothing is happening. Indeed, it is actually, well, I, I, I'm not a Marxist, but I have I have been rethinking some of the Marxist ideas. But um, especially when fa- capitalism faces that acute crisis at, as it does face it. At the moment with people realizing that that shared precarity can be a source of strength and solidarity like in black lives matter right people actually we never seen so many well if I may use that terminology non-black people white people actually joining and re- uh, joining them the black lives matter so and anyway so the capitalism is really facing you know a potential a pot- potentiality that we can use that shared precarity, the precariousness. Excuse me, that COVID made us aware aware of, to actually organise, and then, of course, it redoubles or, or, or multiplies its efforts to actually respond in the same way. So, when the mental, when there is an increased need for mental health services. We face an assault on availability, like uh, in in the same way that, that Alison was describing, actually, uh, in terms of uh, childcare and, and 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 various organizational structures. That so we really need to make that make this um actually I would say become aware of that and publicize that in non-academic channels necessarily. So people are really aware that that's what's going on. So I, I'm not sure that I con- answered exactly what Laura was asking, but I thought that this is a super important point that needs to be made, thank you.
0: I mean, thank you very much. And, and I think on that, uh, it relates to a second question that came up and that I think people have been speaking about in relation um, to there was a question raised around the idea of the commons and the notion that this word, the commons, has been um, used more and more as a replacement for the word public to stand in for the social. And the questioner asks, how should we read this idea of the commons under conditions where public institutions have become, over three past decades, unbundled and rebraided into private property mm-hmm. and equity owners' interests? Mm-hmm. And they have different stakes and stakeholders, naturally, alongside different types of responsabilization of vulnerable individuals. So, how does this unbundling, are the, this move from uh, commons, uh, from public to, to commons, um, affect the way we should read the the meaning of the viral and the commons. And this kind of very much relates to what people have been saying around potential for awareness of precarity, awareness of shared existence, awareness of our bodies inevitably and inescapably dependent upon each other for better or for worse. Um, and, 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 and whether this uh, this idea of the commons can help us to sort of rethink this. Don't know if anyone has
3: thoughts on that. There's Ian, waving. Yes. Uh, Thanks. It's a great question. Well, well, I have two books on my desk uh, right here, which address exactly this point. One is Richard Horton, the editor of the Lancet, and he talks about the role of the state uh, and the important role of the state in providing vital public services as the questioner uh, correctly, you know, absolutely vital, Uh, whether it be mental health care, Uh, healthcare concerning uh, the treatment of pandemic, absolutely, the role of uh, funding uh, care in society, yes, it should absolutely be a a part of the public uh, funded state issue. The Commons is not to do with the state. Uh, It's certainly not. uh, I think there's a slight misinterpretation of the notion of Commons by the questioner. Uh, There's another book here by Silvia Federici, uh, this is re-enchanting the world feminism and the politics of the commons. And uh, she says, that, well, the thing about the commons is the commons is not, is, is, is essentially grounded in social reproduction. Uh, social reproduction is the production of care, the production of the commons, whether it be social relationships, the environment, uh, knowledge, it's all social reproduction. And uh, this uh, is not necessarily undertaken uh, privately or publicly in terms of the, the state. It could be, um, but uh, but it is the, this notion that it's, it, it's often un, unpaid, as uh, Alison and uh, so on has stated. Um, but that needs, uh, it could have state funding. It could have funding from uh, any number of sources, I suppose. Uh, but the, the fact is that it's work, it's important, vital work for, um, and this, as everyone has raised, is, is really become uh, sort of with the epidemic, we've seen a whole number of crises related to the ep- epidemic, whether it be actual health or mental health or unemployment or whatever. But uh, but this idea of the commons, the, the organisation of the commons, is fundamental so, to social reproduction, to caring uh, relations in society. But the but both the commons and the public need to be, we need to rethink about the vital role of these in our organisations. Neoliberalism is uh, Carl has correctly diagnosed is, is, a, is a disaster that's benefiting very, very few, ongoing disaster.
0: Thanks, Ian. And um, I have to say, I think it was my garbled interpretation of the question rather than the questioner's interpretation of the comments that led to the discrepancy. Um, I, I believe that the questioner was was, was pointing out was exactly this, that the state excludes as much as it includes, and is certainly not um, the answer to this in terms of uh, But but, but certainly a key part of the debate. Um, I'm afraid now we're running near time and um, I'm going to have to wind up the event but um, you know I guess from my perspective, from our perspective here at the Whittaker Institute, the Covid situation, the pandemic and uh, how we find ourselves It's going to be years before we know um, what is being written and what is being experienced and we know the outcomes and we know the implications of it, Um, but I I find it really, really helpful to have listened to each of you because um, to take stock at this moment and to hear these uh, various perspectives. Um, on, on what we are experiencing, giving us all some very valuable food for thought. So, sincere thanks to our four panellists today. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to come on. And massive thanks to the team at the Whitaker Institute, Courtney, Angela, and to Megan Van Portfleet as well for um, helping us with this webinar. And huge thanks to our participants and our attendees and for the questions. Of, fortunately, we didn't get to all of them, But uh, we appreciate them very much. Well, we hope to see you back here at some point in the future. And with that, uh, we'll say goodbye. Thank you very much.